Well, holy and gracious Father, we come on this day of Pentecost asking for your Spirit to fill us with that same love, Father, that filled that place on that day when, uh, when a huge crowd, uh, convicted of their sins and their guilt in the death of your Son, Jesus Christ, Father, received mercy and grace and salvation. Father, we thank you for the teachings of Jesus. Father, he came and he taught us that we must love one another, that we must forgive, that we must find a different way or we will destroy each other. We thank you, Father, that his word and the good news of Jesus continues to go out into the world and to bring millions uh, every year into faith and salvation in him. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that strengthens us. Without the Holy Spirit in us, Father, our works are uh, incomplete and insufficient. But Father, when your Spirit empowers us, great things and miracles do happen. Father, may this day we love each other with the love that comes only through you and your Son Jesus and through your Holy Spirit. In your Son's name we pray, and now we sing praise to you, and amen. Good morning. Good morning. Please join me for the, uh, with, for, on the prayer for guidance. Um, Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. I'll be reading from Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. It's on page 39 in your pew Bible. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The word of God for the people of God. Next Sunday, by the way, is uh, a Sunday, it's going to be a busy Sunday. We've got uh, uh, Father's Day that we'll be celebrating. We also uh, have uh, a commissioning of the, uh, of the youth mission team coming up, and that will be in the early service. What's the third thing? There's three things. That, oh, oh, it's uh, Vacation Bible School. Sunday also. So there's a lot going on. We're going to try and tie those things in together. And uh, this morning, my scripture was one that I, I saw and, uh, uh, as part of a uh, sermon series on Mark. I was determined to stay in Mark, but it's also Pentecost Sunday. So normally we spend Pentecost Sunday looking at the second chapter of Acts, the day of Pentecost, and the description of that. But as I was uh, looking at the scripture in Mark 4, the story of the storm on the sea, I began to uh, see how uh, that plays into the day of Pentecost. And many of these stories in the Gospels, uh, in fact, that that particular story is also in Matthew and Mark, almost word for word the same, uh, or Matthew and Luke, almost word for word the same as in Mark, the story of Jesus calming the seas. Uh, But as I looked at that, 
I, I saw some similarities uh, and, and some contrasts in there with the day of Pentecost. So I want to bring some of that out this morning and talk about our Christian lives and where we might be in our lives and those phases of our Christian lives and how that relates back to, uh, back to Pentecost. The interesting thing, has anybody ever been in a, sto- in a boat in a storm at sea? Yeah, okay, not a pleasant thing, can be scary. We, uh, I've been on a big, big boat with folks in a, uh, in a horrific storm that came across the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea and uh, uh, about blew us over, uh, uh, knocking people over. You know, everybody had to have their life vests on the whole time. Uh, also, I, I remember one particular uh, hurricane had come up through into Virginia and uh, Lydia's family lived on the Potomac. We were married at the time, but uh, her father needed some help getting his boat from his pier, which was being ripped to shreds over into a marina, and so uh, I went to help him with that, and uh, just in that Potomac River, now the Sea of Galilee, uh, at the point where my in-laws lived there, where Lydia's family lived, the Sea of Galilee is not very a very wide sea, they call it a sea, it's also called a lake at times, it's not very wide, and actually the Potomac is about a mile across there over to Maryland, so it's actually wider, and the Potomac that night was really up and the waves were up and I remember I, I was going to jump onto the boat was going up and down and you know I have great timing so at just the time I jump the boat is up but as I'm in the air the boat goes way down and I remember plopping uh, down on that thing and and uh, and bruising myself and so a storm at sea no matter what it can be a horrific thing and so here the disciples are in at Jesus request going across to the other side I always like that phrase I used to get a magazine called the other side and it was a magazine that talked about how Christians should actually be looking at themselves as very often being on the other side of whatever's going on in the culture and society that that we have a different story to tell a flip side to tell especially in today's world world where uh, I believe uh, that uh, there are a lot of things that occur every day, and of course the news just amplifies it, uh, but that reveal uh, a coarsening of hearts, a hardening of hearts in many people to the point where uh, evil has just reveals itself in so many shocking ways, such as uh, the shootings down in Virginia Beach. And they've become so commonplace that we're not surprised when just about every week we read about someone, uh, a mass shooting or uh, killings, uh, uh, family members killing family members, uh, parents killing their children. I mean, just these horrible things happening. I believe that those words, the other side, uh, really symbolize to us how we are supposed to represent the church to the world. That there's another place, there's another side to life. And we have to represent that. And I'll talk a little bit about what that other side will look like. But in this case, on this storm for the disciples of Jesus Christ, the other side, they weren't there yet. And they were just filled with fear. It's amazing as you go through the Gospels how many stories there are about the disciples being afraid. How many stories there are about the disciples not understanding Jesus. How many stories there are about them misinterpreting what his mission is in this world? How many stories there are where they just are, they're just failing right and left, right and left? And this is one of those times where they go up to Jesus and say, Don't you care that we perish? And there are a lot of people who claim the name of Jesus Christ, who attend church, 
who I believe are still in that boat on that sea saying to Jesus, don't you care about me? Praying to God and saying, Lord, don't you hear my prayers? Don't you care enough to answer me? And take care of this. And their lives are led through this, in this place of fear. And their entire Christian lives, they never get past that. I've seen churches that cower in fear for years. Churches that are afraid that they won't be able to balance the budget. That they're afraid that, that numbers will, will diminish to the point that they'll have to close the doors. But they never, never cry out to God and expect an answer. Oh, they'll say to God, don't you care? But they don't really expect an answer. There's no faith there yet. They don't quite understand God. They don't understand Jesus. They don't understand what they've been called to. And so, and so they are, are just at that point in the Christian development at the very, very first place and they've never gone past it. Paul talks about being babes who, who still need milk because you can't, you can't digest the meat of the gospel. You can't get past there. And that's where the disciples are in this story. And that's where they are in much of, uh, much of the gospels. Uh, Peter is, is, a, is a really great example of somebody who would occasionally have this bright light come out of him. This, like the light bulb goes off on his head and he'll say, Oh, you are the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus will say, Oh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because uh, you, know, you have not divined this, but heaven has revealed this to you. And then a couple of verses later, Jesus is rebuking him. Because Peter, on the one hand, has shown this revelation of who Jesus is. On the other hand, he doesn't really understand why Jesus is here. And he gets upset when Jesus starts to explain to them that he's going to be handed over to the legal authorities and to evil men and that he's going to be crucified. On the third day he will rise. And Peter's like, no, 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 this isn't, ha- this isn't how it's going to happen. He doesn't understand Jesus. So they're still in this place of fear. And then later on we see Jesus as he's on trial. We see Peter cowering around a fire and denying Jesus. And there are a lot of us who who have lived our lives as Christians in that place where we really don't have a boldness of faith. We don't have that, that assurance of faith that we would stand up and say in a place of persecution or in a place where we might feel that we might be ridiculed where we would stand up for our faith. I mentioned in the prayer about in Iran. Uh, can you imagine, in, in Iran, the reason the people have turned to Christianity, it is said, is because the harshness of the uh, Islamic regime there over all these decades, you know, through that Islamic revolution, have, have, has created in the people a hunger for something that speaks to a world of grace and love. That creates in people... Uh, you know, a brotherhood, a sisterhood of love and fellowship, which they're not experiencing. Instead, it's the harshness of the law being placed upon them. And they see the cruelty. And they see a very different thing in Jesus. They, they see another side to life. And so they're turning to him in, in incredible numbers. Who would have believed that? I, I saw the story the other day about a, a group of prisoners in prison. And uh, these guys are gang members. And their gangs have said, you know, you belong to this gang. You don't join a church. You don't get baptized into Jesus. You don't do any of those things. This gang is your religion. This is your faith. And yet in prisons, people who are gang members who have that penalty of death upon them, 
should they deny their gang and go with the gang of Jesus are choosing to be baptized. And I saw in this news article photographs of these guys coming up, lining up to be baptized into Jesus Christ. Boy, there's hope out there, folks. There's hope out there for the church, and yet within the United States, where we have all the freedom and comforts, that you would think church would be so easy. And yet we're still in that place of fear, and we haven't gotten to the other side from it. But it doesn't stay there for the disciples, and I don't think it has to stay there for any of us. I know it doesn't have to stay there for any of us, because what happens next is is Jesus is tried, and he is crucified, and he is buried, and he is resurrected. And something happens at that point. And suddenly you see a transition in the Gospels. Yes, Thomas has to see to believe. Yes, they're still not empowered the way they need to be to carry the Gospel into the world, but that death burial, resurrection, and then Jesus' ascension into heaven, it nails it down for the disciples. They believe. Now there are people who aren't fearing. There are people with faith. And they listen to Jesus when he says, go into Jerusalem and wait there. Wait. Because God's going to do something. And it's going to be the final stage. So they have moved from fear to faith, but something else has to happen after that. And we read about that in, in Acts chapter 2, and uh, most of us are tremendously familiar with this because every year we have Pentecost Sunday and we hear the scripture as, uh, as Peter stands up in front of this tremendous crowd. Uh, after the disciples all being together in one place, there is this sound like the blowing of a violent wind coming from heaven and filling the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation. It was a time of Pentecost. It was a time when people had been there. They had remained there from, from Passover. At this time you might have a couple million people in Jerusalem as opposed to 200,000 of the regular population. And they hear this, this, uh, uh, all this sound going on and they, and they see the disciples and the disciples begin to speak in different languages and, and, and there's this confusion of tongues and, and they're going, what's going on? And some of them are saying, well, I think that they're drunk and others are saying, no, it's too early in the morning for them to be drunk and there's this confusion and out of that, Peter stands up in the midst of it and by the spoken word, he brings order into the confusion. And he says, no, we're not drunk as you suppose. It's too early for that. But he says, I'm going to talk to you about what happens. And here's what he tells them. He goes straight to God's word. And he begins to tell them out of God's word that everything that is happening has been prophesied. And this is the fulfillment of it. He says, though, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And by the way, I'm going to do a little aside here. Women preaching. Women like Shauna preaching. I I encounter this pretty often. You'd be amazed how often the subject comes up. And, And sometimes from people who visit the church who maybe come from a church where they don't have women preachers. Or they wouldn't have a woman stand up and read the scripture. And they say, yeah, but the Bible says women got to shut up. They've got to be quiet. You know, well, first of all, that's impossible. So, you know, amen. amen. Okay. 
But secondly, women have something to say that we need to hear. And here it is, right here in the very birth of the church on Pentecost, the first words out of Peter's mouth are this, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in these days, and they will prophesy. So what happened to women keeping quiet? And then we have other instances through the book of Acts, especially of women, uh, uh, the daughters of one man. Uh, he had four daughters, and they were prophets. Which means, folks, it wasn't fortune-telling. It means they spoke out the word. They testified. They said, if you don't turn to Jesus, there's dark days ahead of you. They prophesied. They preached. And as we go through the scriptures, as we go through the New Testament, we, th- we see women being referred to as deaconesses. We have instances in the Old Testament of, of, of women who were judges. Deborah was a judge. We have women who speak, and then all of a sudden, they can't, according to some. Paul says there's neither male nor female, free or slave, Jew or Greek, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. That's just my side there. I'm, I'm going to stop there and let y'all chew on that a little bit. But don't so easily uh, just assume that the Bible says women can't speak. I know, I know the scriptures, and I know the explanation. Here's what I think happened. We used to, Lydia and I used to go to a church. I'm, see, I'm going off on this, and, this, and then I'll run out of time. Women, I, Lydia and I used to go to a church, and we were pr- pretty irritated by these two couples who sat in front of us. I don't know why we didn't switch seats, but they sat in front of us, and they used to be our school teachers. Okay, so you'd think they would have known better, but during the service, they were constantly whispering and talking to each other. And it was very distracting to us. So I think of what happened in Corinth where Paul says to the Corinthians, let the women keep silent in the church. If they need to know something, when they get home, they can ask their husbands. I think what was happening was a local situation where there was a little group of women, like I see a little group of women back there, okay? And they kept talking during, as, as, as the preacher was trying to preach or whatever, and it was disturbing people and distracting, and Paul had heard about this, and he heard about this complaint, and he says, they don't need to be talking during the worship. When they get home, they can, if they got questions, if they don't understand something, just let them ask their husband. And he'll say, uh, I don't know, but you know... <laughs> But, you know, there is overwhelming evidence in the New Testament that women have a role of the Word in the church. And I didn't grow up with that. You know, first three decades of my life, I didn't believe that. I wasn't taught that. But I sure believe it now. So let's stop there. The thing is that as Peter preaches and he goes through, all these people respond to it, and they say, what must we do? Their hearts are are, are ripped apart. They realize what they have done. They have crucified the Son of God. What must we do to be saved? Is there any way we can be saved? And Peter has a very simple answer. Because Christianity is really simple. He says, repent. Turn around your lives. Turn away from what what has happened. And, And turn away from your evil ways and be baptized. And that's water baptism, folks. He's talking about, and you say, well, how did they baptize all those people? You know, where was, the, where was the water in Jerusalem? It's a fairly dry place. You know, there were hundreds of what they called mikvahs around Jerusalem, which 
which they converted into baptistries for baptizing Christians into Jesus Christ. But those mikvahs were places where Jews would regularly go when they felt that they needed to recommit their life to God, when they had done something wrong, that they could go to the mikvah and they would go down into the water and come back up and they would walk down one side of the stairs and coming back they would walk up a different side of the stairs because they had changed their path, they had changed their course in life. And it was a symbolic way to say, I have made a change. So Peter says to him, you go down and we'll go out to these mikvahs and we will baptize you into Jesus Christ and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise to everyone here, that when you are baptized into Jesus Christ, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, did things go well? Yeah, at the beginning, it went extremely well. And listen to this. It says that the, the, uh, the new Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Isn't that true? Even today, somebody works a miracle, we're filled with wonder. How did they do it? I wonder how. You know, we're filled with awe that somebody could do this. And, that, and those things were done by Jesus, the miracles, and by the apostles, the miracles that they did to affirm that the church was for real. This is a way of saying to the world, this is the real deal. And there is a God behind this. But then listen to this. It says, all the believers who were together had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know what? I would take every one of those healing miracles and, 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 and trade it in for the last words, the description of the people there. What is a description of is a people who loved and cared for each other. And folks, in the limited time that I have, if we're going to move from that place of being fearful Christians to faithful Christians to spirit-filled Christians, we need to understand what it means to be spirit-filled. Now, in the New Testament, in Paul's letters especially, you have some evidence that people were abusing these gifts. There's a man in the book of Acts who even offers Peter money if he will sell him the power to heal. Because this would be a great thing to have. I mean, it'd be like you could charge people for the healings. You know, his, his, his heart wasn't right, but he wanted that. And a lot of people really get, well, we're so impressed with, with that kind of miracle or speaking in tongues and, and anything that's out of the ordinary. It's just so impressive. But here's what I believe the scriptures teach us. Paul sees, especially in Corinth, that people are abusing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they're really not understanding what the true gift of the Holy Spirit is. What, how the fruit of the Spirit is grown. And it is grown through love. Number one, you, you, you may come to me, somebody could come to me and say, hey, do people speak in tongues in your church? And I say, well, there may be some, I don't know. But what I really hope is that we really want to love. I really hope that we're praying that we would be a more loving people. You, can you imagine a church where everybody was so... Uh, Paul, uh, uh, John Wesley used the term perfected in love that we really didn't care what happened to us as much as, much as we cared about what happened to our brothers and sisters around us and cared about the people in the community. To have that kind of love. John says in his epistles that, that if we love God, we will obey his commandments. Paul goes on 
and does a great description in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He explains to the people, okay, here are the variety of gifts that come to you through the Holy Spirit. Some have a gift of teaching and preaching. And, you know, he explains all the different gifts that people have. And, and, you know, he's taking time to do that because that's important that we understand that. But then what happens, that's in chapter 12. What happens in 1 Corinthians 13? Most people know this. You've been to weddings. You've heard it. Unfortunately, we just think it's a little wedding thing that, that Paul wrote. But it's a continuation of chapter 12 where he's talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he says, but let me show you a more excellent way. Excellent means perfect, right? Excellent means this is what you should really be shooting for. You shouldn't be jealous of the gifts that other people have been given. But you should be trying to gain this gift. And what is that gift? Love. And he says, he says listen, if you come in here and you have the gift to prophesy, but you don't have love. If you have the gift to work miracles, if you have the gift of tremendous faith, your faith is so strong that you will give your body to be burned for the sake of the cause, but you don't have love, is nothing. Is meaningless. It has no purpose. And so folks, ultimately, Pentecost isn't about speaking in tongues. And it's not about miracles of healing. Pentecost is about the miracle of love. And I would give anything for a church, and I think we're pretty close, <laughs> that was perfected in love. And a church that said, said, it would be wonderful, God, if you allowed us in this prayer to have healing. But Father, above all, let us love this person with the love of your Son, Jesus Christ, and love as he loved us. Let us move away from fear to faith to being Spirit-filled and understanding that to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with your perfect love. I always thought it was interesting. I'll end with this. John Wesley uh, believed in the possibility of perfection. He said he had never known anyone who was perfect, but he believed it was possible. Whereas many churches were saying it was an impossibility, that nobody could be perfect. But he said it's this. It's not, perf- it's not perfection of actions and decisions. It's not perfection of the mind. But it is the person who is fully surrendered to God's love so that that love flows through him. And so that love flowing through him or her can be felt in a way that there is no mistaking that Jesus Christ is in the room. That the presence of God is with you. Folks, that should be our prayer for this church. That should be our prayer for each other. That we would be perfected in that love. So that the world might look and say, Behold how they love one another. Do you know where that term came from? Have you ever heard that before? Behold how they love one another. It was a, it was a man named Aristides. He was a historian and, and a reporter. And, the, and, the, and the Caesar sent him on a mission and said, I want you to go investigate the Christians because the Christians were infiltrating Rome and little groups were popping up. I want you to find out what all this is about. And Aristides came back and he didn't, you, you can read his report, he doesn't fully understand the Lord's Supper and the sharing of the cup. and He doesn't understand a lot of things. But he said this, his summary, he said, but behold how they love one another. That was the thing that stood out to him. That was the difference between the Christians and everybody else. They loved each other. May God bless us so that we might know that we love each other as God's love flows through us this day.
and amen. Our song of discipleship, I have decided to follow Jesus. When you follow Jesus, folks, there is a, it is a journey. There is a path to go. You take up that cross and you follow him. And you follow him from fear to faith to being spirit-filled. May that be your story this day as we stand and sing. Holy Father, as we go forth, may we go forth in your love. Father, may your spirit prod us as we go along. May it alert us to opportunities to share and to bless others. May, Father, we always, may we always remember that we wear the name of Christ. And Father, with the wearing of that name comes a great responsibility and a great joy, knowing, O oh Lord, that we can get to the other side with Him and know the fullness of Your Spirit. Father, bless this church this day and all churches who glorify You in the name of Jesus. And Amen.